Section 34 of Around the World on a Bicycle, Volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Around the World on a Bicycle, Volume 1, by Thomas Stevens, Chapter 16, Part 2. Through the Silas Velayet into Armenia. I am remaining over one day at Sivas, and in the morning we call on the American missionaries. Mr. Perry is at home, and hopes I am going to stay a week, so that they can sort of make up for the discomforts of journeying through the country. Mr. Hubbard and the ladies of the mission are out of town, but will be back this evening. After dinner we go round to the government Konak, and call on the valley, Halil Eifat Pasha, whom Mr. Weekly describes beforehand as a very practical man, fond of mechanical contrivances, and who would never forgive him if he allowed me to leave Sivas with the bicycle without paying him a visit. The usual rigmarole of salams, cigarettes, coffee, compliments, and questioning are gone through with. The valley is a jolly-faced, good-natured man, and is evidently much interested in my companion's description of the bicycle and my journey. Of course, I don't forget to praise the excellence of the road from Yeni Khan. I can conscientiously tell him that it is superior to anything I have wheeled over south of the Balkans. The Pasha is delighted at hearing this, and beaming joyously over his spectacles, his fat, jolly face a rotund picture of satisfaction, he says to Mr. Weekly, You see, he praises up our roads, and he ought to know. He has travelled on wagon roads halfway round the world. The interview ends by the valley inviting me to ride the bicycle out to his country residence this evening, giving the order for a squad of Zaptes to escort me out of town at the appointed time. The valley is one of the most energetic pashas in Turkey, says Mr. Weekly, as we take our departure. You would scarcely believe that he has established a small weekly newspaper here, and makes it self-supporting into the bargain, would you? I confess I don't see how he manages it among these people, I reply quite truthfully, for these are anything but newspaper-supporting people. How does he manage to make it self-supporting? Why, he makes every employee of the government subscribe for a certain number of copies, and the subscription price is kept back out of their salaries. For instance, the Mulazim of Zaptes would have to take half a dozen copies, the Mutaserif a dozen, etc., if from any unforeseen cause the current expenses are found to be more than the income, a few additional copies are saddled on each subscriber. Before leaving Sivas, I arrive at the conclusion that Halil Eifat Pasha knows just about what's what, while administering the affairs of the Sivas Vilayet in a manner that has gained him the goodwill of the population at large, he hasn't neglected his opportunities at the Constantinople end of the rope. More than one beautiful Circassian girl has, 
I am told, been forwarded to the Sultan's harem by the enterprising and sagacious Sivas Valley. Consequently, he holds trump cards, so to speak, both in the province and the palace. Promptly at the hour appointed, the squad of Zaptes arrive. Mr. Weakley mounts his servant on a prancing Arab charger and orders him to manoeuvre the horse so as to clear the way in front. The Zaptes commence their flogging, and in the middle of the cleared space I trundle the bicycle. While making our way through the streets, Mr. Hubbard, who with the ladies has just returned to the city, is encountered on the way to invite Mr. Weakley and myself to supper. As he pushes his way through the crowd and reaches my side, he pronounces it the worst rabble he ever saw in the streets of Sivas, and he has been stationed here over twelve years. Once clear of the streets, I mount and soon outdistance the crowd, though still followed by a number of horsemen. Part way out we wait for the valley's state carriage, in which he daily rides between the city and his residence. While waiting, a terrific squall of wind and dust comes howling from the direction we are going, and while it is still blowing great guns, the valley and his mounted escort arrive. His Excellency alights and examines the Columbia with much interest, and then requests me to ride on immediately in advance of the carriage. The grade is slightly against me, and the whistling wind seems to be shrieking a defiance. But, by superhuman efforts almost, I pedal ahead and manage to keep in front of his horses all the way. The distance from Sivas is four and a quarter miles by the cyclometer. This is the first time it has ever been measured. We are ushered into a room, quite elegantly furnished, and light refreshments served. Observing my partiality for Vishnu, the governor kindly offers me a flask of the syrup to take along, which I am, however, reluctantly compelled to refuse owing to my inability to carry it. Here also we meet Javed Bey, the Pasha's son, who has recently returned from Constantinople, and who says he saw me riding at Principo. The valley gets down on his hands and knees to examine the route of my journey on a map of the world which he spreads out on the carpet. He grows quite enthusiastic and exclaims, Wonderful! Very wonderful, says Javed Bey. When you get back to America, they will build you a statue. Mr. Hubbard has mounted a horse and followed us to the valley's residence, and at the approach of dusk we take our departure. The wind is favorable for the return, as is also the gradient. Ere my two friends have unhitched their horses, I mount and am scudding before the gale, half a mile away. Hey, 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 hey! You'll never overtake him! The valley shouts enthusiastically to the two horsemen as they start at full gallop after me, and which they laughingly repeat to me shortly afterward. A very pleasant evening is spent at Mr. Hubbard's house. After supper, the ladies sing Sweet by and by and home sweet home.
and other melodious reminders of the land of liberty and song that gave them birth. Everything looks comfortable and homelike, and they have English ivy inside the dining-room, trained up the walls and partly covering the ceiling, which produces a wonderfully pleasant effect. The usual extraordinary rumours of my wonderful speeding ability have circulated about the city during the day and evening, some of which have happened to come to the ears of the missionaries. One story is that I came from the port of Samsun, a distance of nearly three hundred miles, in six hours, while an imaginative Katirji, whom I whisked past on the road, has been telling the Sivas people an exaggerated story of how a genie had ridden past him with lightning-like speed on a shining wheel. But whether it was a good or evil genie, he said he didn't have time to determine, as I went past like a flash and vanished in the distance. The missionaries have four hundred scholars attending their school here at Sivas, which would seem to indicate a pretty flourishing state of affairs. Their recruiting ground is, of course, among the Armenians, who, though professedly Christians, really stand in more need of regeneration than their Mohammedan neighbours. The characteristic condition of the average Armenian villager's mind is deep, dense ignorance and moral gloominess. It requires more patience and perseverance to engraft a new idea on the unimpressionable trunk of an Armenian villager's intellect than it does to put up second-hand stovepipe, and it is a generally admitted fact, i.e. west of the Missouri Elver, that anyone capable of setting up three joints of second-hand stovepipe without using profane language deserves a seat in paradise. Come in here a minute, says Mr. Hubbard, just before our departure for the night, leading the way into an adjoining room. Here's shirts, underclothing, socks, handkerchiefs, everything. Help yourself to anything you require. I know something about travelling through this country myself. But not caring to impose too much on good nature, I content myself with merely pocketing a strong pair of socks that I know will come in handy. I leave the bicycle at the mission overnight, and in the morning, at Miss Chamberlain's request, I ride round the schoolhouse yard a few times for the edification of the scholars. The greatest difficulty, I am informed, with Armenian pupils is to get them to take sufficient interest in anything to ask questions. It is mainly because the bicycle will be certain to awaken interest and excite the spirit of inquiry among them that I am requested to ride for their benefit. Thus is the bicycle fairly recognized as a valuable aid to missionary work. Moral. Let the American and Episcopal boards provide their Asia Minor and Persian missionaries with nickel-plated bicycles. Let them wheel their way into the empty wilderness of the Armenian mind, and light up the impenetrable moral darkness lurking therein with the glowing and mist dispelling orbs of cycle lamps. Messrs. Perry, Hubbard, and Weakley 
accompany me out some distance on horseback, and at parting I am commissioned to carry salams to the brethren in China. This is the first opportunity that has ever presented of sending greetings overland to far-off China, they say, and such rare occasions are not to be lightly overlooked. They also promise to send word to the Ezerum mission to expect me. The chances are, however, that I shall reach Ezerum before their letter. There are no lightning mail trains in Asia Minor. The road eastward from Sivas is an artificial highway and affords reasonably good wheeling, but is somewhat inferior to the road from Yenikau. Before long I enter a region of low hills, dales, and small lakes, beyond which the road again descends into the valley of the Kieselermak. All day long the roadway averages better wheeling than I ever expected to find in Asiatic Turkey, but the prevailing east wind offers strenuous opposition to my progress every inch of the way along the hundred miles or so of rideable road from Yenikan to Zara a town at which i arrive near sundown zara is situated at the entrance to a narrow passage between two mountain spurs and although the road is here a dead level and the surface smooth the wind comes roaring from the gorge with such tremendous pressure that it is only by extraordinary exertions that i am able to keep the saddle tiftik gioglu effendi was a gentleman of Greek descent. At Zara I have an opportunity of seeing and experiencing something of what hospitality is like among the better-class Armenians, for I have brought from Sivas a letter of introduction to Kirkor Aga Tartarion, the most prominent Armenian gentleman in Zara. I have no difficulty whatever in finding the house, and am at once installed in the customary position of honour, while five serving-men hover about, ready to wait on me. Some take a hand in the inevitable ceremony of preparing and serving coffee and lighting cigarettes, while others stand watchfully by, waiting word or look from myself or mine host, or from the privileged guests that immediately begin to arrive. The room is of cedar planking throughout, and is absolutely without furniture, save the carpeting and the cushioned divan on which I am seated. Mr. Tartarian sits cross-legged on the carpet to my left, smoking a nargile. His younger brother occupies a similar position on my right, rolling and smoking cigarettes, while the guests, as they arrive, squat themselves on the carpet in positions varying in distance from the divan according to their respective rank and social importance no one ventures to occupy the cushioned divan alongside myself although the divan is fifteen feet long and it makes me feel uncomfortably like the dog in the manger to occupy its whole length alone in a farther corner and off the slightly raised and carpeted floor on which are seated the guests is a small brick fireplace on which a charcoal fire is brightly burning and here mr vartarian's private kaveji is kept busily employed in brewing tiny cups of strong black coffee 
another servant constantly visits the fire to ferret out pieces of glowing charcoal with small pipe-lighting tongs with which he circulates among the guests supplying a light to the various smokers of cigarettes a third youth is kept pretty tolerably busy performing the same office for mr vartarian's nargile for the gentleman is an inveterate smoker and in all turkey there can scarcely be another nargile requiring so much tinkering with as his all the livelong evening something keeps getting wrong with that wretched pipe mine host himself is continually rearranging the little pile of live coals on top of the dampened tobacco the tobacco smoked in an argale is dampened and live coals are placed on top taking off the long coiled tube and blowing down it or prying around in the tobacco receptacle with an awl-like instrument in his efforts to make it draw properly, but without making anything like a success, while his nargile boy is constantly hovering over it with a new supply of live coals. Job himself could scarcely have been possessed of more patience, I think, at first. But before the evening is over, I come to the conclusion that my worthy host wouldn't exchange that particular hubble-bubble with its everlasting contrariness for the most perfectly drawing nargile in Turkey. Like certain devotees of the weed among ourselves, who never seem to be happier than when running a broom-straw down the stem of a pipe that chronically refuses to draw, so Kirkur Aga Varterian finds his chief amusement in thus tinkering from one week's end to another with his nargile. At the supper-table, mine host and his brother both lavish attentions upon me. Knives and forks, of course, there are none, these things being seldom seen in Asia Minor, and to a cycler who has spent the day in peddling against a stiff breeze, their absence is a matter of small moment. I am ravenously hungry, and they both win my warmest esteem by transferring choice morsels from their own plates into mine with their fingers. From what I know of strict hot ton zaran etiquette, I think they should really pop these titbits into my mouth, and the reason they don't do so is perhaps because I fail to open it in the customary hot ton manner. However, it is a distasteful thing to be always sticking up for one's individual rights. A pile of quilts and mattresses, three feet thick, and feather pillows galore are prepared for me to sleep on. An attendant presents himself with a wonderful nightshirt, on the ample proportions of which are displayed bewildering colours and figures, and following the custom of the country, shapes himself for undressing me and assisting me in to bed. This, however, I prefer to do without assistance, owing to a large stock of native modesty. I never fell among people more devoted in their attentions. Their only thought during my stay is to make me comfortable, but they are very ceremonious and great sticklers for etiquette. I had intended making my usual early start, but mine host receives with open disapproval 
i fancy even with a showing of displeasure my proposition to depart without first partaking of refreshments and it is nearly eight o'clock before i finally get started immediately after rising comes the inevitable coffee and early morning visitors later an attendant arrives with breakfast for myself on a small wooden tray mr Varterian occupies precisely the same position and is engaged in precisely the same occupation as yesterday evening as is also his brother no sooner does the hapless attendant make his appearance with the eatables than these two persons spring simultaneously to their feet apparently in a towering rage and chase him back out of the room meanwhile pursuing him with a torrent of angry words they then return to their prospective positions and respective occupations ten minutes later the attendant reappears but this time bringing a larger tray with an ample spread for three persons this it afterward appears is not because mine host and his brother intends partaking of any but because it is armenian etiquette to do so and armenian etiquette therefore becomes responsible for the spectacle of a solitary feeder seated at breakfast with dishes and everything prepared for three while of the other two one is smoking a nargale the other cigarettes and both of them regarding my evident relish of scrambled eggs and cold fowl with intense satisfaction having by this time determined to merely drift with the current tide of mine host's intentions concerning the time of my departure i resume my position on the divan after breakfasting simply hinting that i would like to depart as soon as possible to this mr Vartarian complacently nods assent and his brother with equal complacency rolls me a cigarette after which a good half hour is consumed in preparing for me a letter of introduction to their friend muduragana in the village of kachahurda which i expect to reach somewhere near noon mine host dictates while his brother writes visitors continue coming in and i am beginning to get a trifle impatient about starting and beginning in fact to wish all their nonsensical ceremonious at the bottom of the deep blue sea or some equally unfathomable quarter when at a signal from mr vartarian himself his brother and the whole roomful of visitors rise simultaneously to their feet and equally simultaneously put their hands on their respective stomachs and turning toward me salam mine host then comes forward shakes hands gives me the letter to muduragana and permits me to depart he has provided two zaptes to escort me outside the town and in a few minutes i find myself bowling briskly along a beautiful little valley the pellucid waters of a purling brook dance merrily alongside an excellent piece of road birds are singing merrily in the willow trees and dark rocky crags tower skyward immediately around the lovely little valley terminates all too soon for in fifteen minutes i am footing it up another mountain but it proves to be the entrance gate of a region containing grander pine-clad mountain scenery than anything encountered outside the sierra nevadas 
In fact, the famous scenery of Cape Horn, California, almost finds its counterpart at one particular point I traverse this morning. Only instead of a central Pacific railway winding around the grey old crags and precipices, the enterprising Sivas Valley has built an Araba road. One can scarce resist the temptation of wheeling down some of the less precipitous slopes, but it is sheer indiscretion, for the roadway makes sharp turns at points where to continue straight ahead a few feet too far would launch one into eternity. A broken break, a wild coast of a thousand feet through mid-air into the dark depths of a rocky gorge, and the tour around the world would abruptly terminate. For a dozen miles I traverse a tortuous road, winding its way among wild mountain gorges and dark pine forests. Circassian horsemen are occasionally encountered. It seems the most appropriate place imaginable for robbers, and I have again been cautioned against these freebooting mountaineers at Sivas. They eye me curiously and generally halt after they have passed, and watch my progress for some minutes. Once I am overtaken by a couple of them, they follow close behind me up a mountain slope. They are heavily armed and look capable of anything, and I plod along, mentally calculating how to best encompass their destruction with the Smith and Wesson, without coming to grief myself, should their intentions toward me prove criminal. It is not exactly comfortable or reassuring to have two armed horsemen, of a people who are regarded with universal fear and mistrust by everyone around them, following close upon one's heels, with the disadvantage of not being able to keep an eye on their movements. However, they have little to say, and as none of them attempt any interference, it is not for me to make insinuations against them on the barren testimony of their outward appearance, and the voluntary opinions of their neighbours. My route now leads up a rocky ravine, the road being fairly under cover of overarching rocks at times, thence over a billowy region of mountain summits, an elevated region of pine-clad ridges and rocky peaks, to descend again into a cultivated country of undulating hills and dales checkered with fields of grain. These low rolling hills appear to be in a higher state of cultivation than any district I have traversed in Asia Minor. From points of vantage the whole country immediately around looks like a swelling sea of golden grain. Harvesting is going merrily on, men and women are reaping side by side in the fields, and the songs of the women come floating through the air from all directions. They are Armenian peasants, for I am now in Armenia proper. The inhabitants of this particular locality impress me as a light-hearted, industrious people. They have an abundant harvest, and it is a pleasure to stand and see them reap, and listen to the singing of the women. Moreover, they are more respectably clothed than the lower-class natives round about them. Barring, of course, our unfathomable acquaintances, the Circassians. 
Toward the eastern extremity of this peaceful, happy scene is the village of Cachahurda, which I reach soon after noon, and where resides Muduragana, to whom I bring a letter. Picturesquely speaking, Cachahurda is a disgrace to the neighborhood in which it stands. Its mud hovels are combined cow pens, chicken coops, and human habitations, and they are bunched up together without any pretense to order or regularity. Yet the light-hearted, decently clad people, whose songs come floating from the harvest fields, live contentedly in this and other equally wretched villages round about. Muduragana provides me with a repast of bread and yaourt, and endeavours to make my brief halt comfortable. While I am discussing these refreshments, himself and another unwashed, unkempt old party come to high, angry words about me. But whatever it is about, I haven't the slightest idea. Mine host seems a regular old savage when angry. He is the happy possessor of a pair of powerful lungs, which are ably seconded by a foghorn voice, and he howls at the other man like an enraged bull. The other man doesn't seem to mind it, though, and keeps up his end of the controversy, or whatever it is, in a comparatively cool and aggravating manner. That seems to feed Muduragana's righteous wrath, until I quite expect to see that outraged person reach down one of the swords off the wall and hack his opponent into sausage meat. Once I venture to inquire, as far as one can inquire by pantomime, what they are quarrelling so violently about me for, being really inquisitive to find out. They both immediately cease hostilities to assure me that it is nothing for which I am in any way personally responsible, and then they straightway fall to glaring savagely at each other again, and renew their vocal warfare more vigorously, if anything, from having just drawn a peaceful breath. Mine host of Cachahorda can scarcely be called a very civilized or refined individual. He has neither the gentle kindliness of Kirkorada Vartarian, nor the dignified gentlemanly bearing of Tiftik Gioglu Effendi, but he grabs a club, and roaring like the hoarse whistle of a Mississippi steamboat, chases a crowd of villagers out of the room who venture to come in on purpose, to stare rudely at his guest, and for this charitable action alone he deserves much credit. Nothing is so annoying as to have these unwashed crowds standing, gazing, and commenting while one is eating. A man is sent with me to direct me aright where the road forks, a mile or so from the village. From the forks it is a newly made road, in fact unfinished. It resembles a ploughed field for looseness and depth. And when, in addition to this, one has to climb a gradient of twenty meters to the hundred, a bicycle is anything but a comforting thing to possess. The country becomes more broken and more mountainous than ever, and the road winds about fearfully. 
often a part of the road that is but a mile away as the crow flies requires an hour's steady going to reach it but the mountain scenery is glorious occasionally i round a point or reach a summit from whence a magnificent and comprehensive view bursts upon the vision and it really requires an effort to tear oneself away realizing that in all probability i shall never see it again at one point i seem to be overlooking a vast amphitheatre which encompasses within itself the physical geography of a continent it is traversed by whole mountain ranges of lesser degree it contains tracts of stony desert and fertile valley lakes and a river not excepting even the completing element of a fine forest and encompassing it round about like an impenetrable palisade protecting it against invasion are scores of grand old mountains grim sentinels that nothing can overcome the road though still among the mountains is now descending in a general way from the elevated divide down toward Enderes and the valley of the Gevmeli chai river and toward evening i enter an armenian village the custom from here eastward appears to be to have the threshing floors in or near the village there are sometimes several different floors and when they are winnowing the grain on windy days the whole village becomes covered with an inch or two of chaff i am glad to find these threshing floors in the villages because they give me an excellent opportunity to ride and satisfy the people thus saving me no end of worry and annoyance the air becomes chilly after sundown and i am shown into a close room containing one small air hole and am provided with a quilt and pillow later in the evening a turkish bay arrives with an escort of zaptes and occupies the same apartment which would seem to be a room especially provided for the accommodation of travellers the moment the officer arrives behold there is a hurrying to and fro of the villagers to sweep out the room kindle a fire to brew his coffee and to bring him water and a vessel for his ablutions before saying his evening prayers cringing servility characterizes the demeanor of these armenian villagers toward the turkish officer and their hurrying hither and thither to supply him ere they are asked looks to me wonderfully like a propitiating of the gods the bey himself seems to be a pretty good sort of a fellow offering me a portion of his supper consisting of bread olives and onions which however i decline having already ordered eggs and pillau of a villager the bay's company is highly acceptable since it saves me from the annoyance of being surrounded by the usual ragged unwashed crowd during the evening and secures me a refreshing sleep undisturbed by visions of purloined straps or moccasins he appears to be a very pious musulman after washing his head hands and feet he kneels toward mecca on the wet towel 
and prays for nearly twenty minutes by my timepiece, and his sighs of Allah are wonderfully deep-fetched, coming apparently from clear down in his stomach. While he is thus devotionally engaged, his two zaptes stand respectfully by, and divide their time between eyeing myself and the bicycle with wonder, and the bay with mingled reverence and awe. At early dawn I steal noiselessly away to avoid disturbing the peaceful slumbers of the bay. For several miles my road winds around among the foothills of the range I crossed yesterday, but following a gradually widening depression which finally terminates in the Gevmeli Chai Valley, and directly ahead and below me lies the considerable town of Enderes, surrounded by a broad fringe of apple orchards and walnut and jujube groves. Here I obtain a substantial breakfast of Turkish kebabs, tidbits of mutton spitted on a skewer and broiled over a charcoal fire, at a public eating khan, after which the mudir kindly undertakes to explain to me the best route to Erzingan, giving me the names of several villages to inquire for as a guidance. While talking to the mudir, Mr. Pronati, an Italian engineer in the employ of the Sivas Valley, makes his appearance, shakes hands, reminds me that Italy has recently volunteered assistance to England in the Sudan campaign, and then conducts me to his quarters in another part of the town. Mr. Pronati can speak almost any language but English. I speak next to nothing but English. Nevertheless, we manage to converse quite readily, for besides proficiency in pantomimic language acquired by daily practice, I have necessarily picked up a few scattering words of the vernacular of the several countries traversed on the tour. While discussing a nice ripe watermelon with this gentleman, several respectable-looking people enter and introduce themselves through Mr. Pronati as Osmanli Turks, not Armenians, expecting me to regard them more favorably on that account. Soon afterward a party of Armenians arrive and take labored pains to impress upon me that they are not Turks but Christian Armenians. Both parties seem desirous of winning my favorable opinion. One party thinks the surest plan is to let me know that they are Turks, the others to let me know that they are not Turks. I have told both parties to go to Gehenna, says my Italian friend. These people will worry you to death with their foolishness if you make the mistake of treating them with consideration. Donning an Indian pith helmet that is three sizes too large, and well-nigh conceals his features, Mr. Pronati orders his horse, and accompanies me some distance out to put me on the proper course to Erzingan. My route from Enderes leads along a lovely fertile valley, between lofty mountain ranges, an intricate network of irrigating ditches, fed by mountain streams, affords an abundance of water for wheat fields, vineyards, and orchards. It is the best, 
and yet the worst watered valley I ever saw, the best because the irrigating ditches are so numerous, the worst because most of them are overflowing and converting my road into mud holes and shallow pools. In the afternoon I reach somewhat higher ground, where the road becomes firmer, and I bowl merrily along eastward, interrupted by nothing save the necessity of dismounting and shedding my nether garments every few minutes to ford a broad, swift feeder to the lesser ditches lower down the valley. In this fructiferous vale my road sometimes leads through areas of vineyards surrounded by low mud walls, where grapes can be had for the reaching, and where the proprietor of an orchard will shake down a shower of delicious yellow pears for whatever you like to give him, or for nothing, if one wants him to. I suppose these villagers have established prices for their commodities when dealing with each other, but they almost invariably refuse to charge me anything. Some will absolutely refuse any payment, and my only plan of recompensing them is to give money to the children. Others accept, with as great a show of gratitude as if I were simply giving it to them, without having received an equivalent, whatever I choose to give. The numerous irrigating ditches have retarded my progress to an appreciable extent today, so that, notwithstanding the early start and the absence of mountain climbing, my cyclometer registers but a gain of thirty-seven miles, when having continued my eastward course for some time after nightfall, and failing to reach a village, I commence looking around for somewhere to spend the night. The valley of the Givmeli Chai has been left behind, and I am again traversing a narrow, rocky pass between the hills. Among the rocks I discover a small open cave, in which I determine to spend the night. The region is elevated and the night air chilly, so I gather together some dry weeds and rubbish and kindle a fire. With something to cook and eat, and a pair of blankets, I could have spent a reasonably comfortable night. But a pocketful of pears has to suffice for supper, and when the unsubstantial fuel is burned away, my airy chamber on the bleak mountainside and the thin cambric tent affords little protection from the insinuating chilliness of the night air. Variety is said to be the spice of life, no doubt it is, under certain conditions, but I think it all depends on the conditions whether it is spicy or not spicy. For instance, the vicissitudes of fortune that favour me with bread and sour milk for dinner, a few pears for supper and a wakeful night of shivering discomfort in a cave, as the reward of wading fifty irrigating ditches and traversing thirty miles of ditch-bedeviled donkey-trails during the day, may look spicy and even romantic from a distance. But when one wakes up in a cold shiver about one thirty a.m. and realizes that several hours of wretchedness are before him, his waking thoughts are apt to be anything but thoughts complimentary of the spiciness of the situation. Inshallah, fortune will favour me with better dues tomorrow, and if not tomorrow, then the next day, 
or the next. End of section 34